One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So at that stage, they make up their mind, let's take her upstairs and we're going to basically do whatever we want to her, but she's going to get a beating. The girls downstairs know that this is going to happen, but they think it's quite funny, by the way. But the bottom line is, that is the last time that Anne-Marie Smith is seen by most of the people downstairs. Hi, I'm Yardley. This is Detective Dan. Hey there. And his identical twin brother, Detective Dave. Hello. And this is Small Town Dicks. You'll hear detectives from small towns around the world discuss their most memorable cases. We cover the intimate details of what went wrong and what went right. As these dedicated men and women search for justice and crack the case. Names and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. So please join us in maintaining their anonymity out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Hello, everyone. Hello, Dan. (laughs) He's looking at me like I'm a dope. And we have Detective Dave. Great to be back. It's great to see you. And Small Town Fam, I hope you're sitting down because we have once again crossed the pole because I'm in Los Angeles, and bopped on over to Northern Ireland to welcome a new guest to the podcast, retired Detective Sam. Good afternoon from Northern Ireland on a bright and sunny day, which is unusual. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is. We are so, so thrilled to have you. And um, we're meeting by Zoom. In that case, you may hear signs of life, like lapping dogs, Meowing cats, garbage trucks, who knows? You know the drill. All right, Sam, I'm just going to hand it over to you. Tell us how this case came to you. Okay, so first of all, can I say thank you very much for having me and giving me this opportunity. I do listen to the podcast and I find it extremely interesting. Thank you. I'm going to give a bit of background about myself first so that that sort of sets the scene. Perfect. So I first joined the police in Northern Ireland in 1976 as a part-time officer. And it was really to assist the local police in dealing with local issues in the area in which you lived. In 1978, I joined the regular force, which was at that time the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And I'm very biased and loyal to that, that force. I did a total of 28 years in that force. 24 years of which I spent as a detective in various guises, 
I interviewed, I ran cases, and as promotion came, I was in charge of various different units combating ordinary crime, terrorist crime. You basically name it, we were sort of jack of all trades, probably, as they say, master of none. (laughs) So growing up in Northern Ireland, for those of you who don't know, and I would dare say a lot of people, especially in the US and in sort of the wider world, Northern Ireland's a very, very small country. At this minute in time, I think the population is 1.75 million. From 1968 until 1998, we unfortunately were involved in a strife here, as it's been described. Some people have described it as a war, but it was a religious war. And it was a war where we had two sides vying for the upper hand, in that one side wanted us to leave Great Britain and become part of a united Ireland. And the other side wanted to remain as part of Great Britain. So what we have on one side, we have the Republicans who wanted to be a part of Ireland. On the other side, we had the Loyalists who were mostly Protestant and they wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. As a result of that, from 1968 until the signing of the peace treaty in 1998, there was a conflict. The word conflict doesn't do it justice. Because as a police officer, and I'm sure other police officers will agree with this, when you sign on the dotted line to be a police officer or a sheriff or a highway patrolman, your duties are basically policing duties. They're not to lift a rifle every day and go to war like a soldier. And unfortunately for us in certain parts of Northern Ireland, that's what it was like. We were almost like soldiers because of the way we dressed, because of the armaments we had to carry at all times. Every time we went out on duty, it was a threat. But this was not prevalent throughout Northern Ireland. The really bad areas in Northern Ireland where the most terrorism was being affected, that probably would only have been about 10% of the country. You could call it a small minority, but they really did know how to hurt people. So, as I say, I started 1976 in uniform, then joined regulars, 1978. What's the regulars? So, when I first joined the police, you could join part-time. It was called a reserve force. So, you had part-time reserve where you worked in your own community as a backup to the local police. And uh, then you joined the regular force was, you know, being a constable. How many detectives in your agency that you worked out of? There were two main stations in the centre of Belfast and I was in the smaller one. Uh, We would have had 12 detectives. The main station would have had about 16. But then in the outlying areas of Belfast, you would have had maybe 10 other offices. For Belfast detectives, you may have had, for the whole of Belfast, maybe about 200. So, 1982, I became a detective. So I was involved in the investigation of many, many cases. And a lot of them were to do with terrorism. Some were to do with, we would call them domestic murders. But what I'm going to talk about today is actually a sectarian murder. Can you say what that is? Sectarianism, it's religious fervor in that one side hates the other. And if they commit a crime against the other side, you know, it's like the Roman Catholic and Protestant. Now, most live in peace over here, but the real diehards that really don't want the coexistence any crime committed against the other side is sectarian. 
Aha, uh-huh. so it's a hate crime carried out in the name of religion. And in Northern Ireland at that time, that meant these crimes were between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. That's right. Did that carry a special enhancement? Absolutely. It's classed as terrorism. For interview purposes, you wouldn't be interviewed in a normal police establishment. We have a specific holding center for sectarian crimes. Okay, so really to set the scene, 1992, it's a Sunday, it's in the month of February, and a young girl called Anne-Marie Smith, she's 24 years of age, she's a single mother, and she has two children. She lives in a coastal town about... 40 miles from Belfast, the capital of Northern Ireland. And on that Sunday, she has her parents babysit for her and she goes to see a local group that she follows who are doing a gig in her local town. Like a a local band? Yes. So everything's fine and dandy and she goes and she sees the group. They finish playing, say, half past six. It's an afternoon gig. And she still has a babysitter and the group know her and basically say, listen, we're going to do a second gig here up in Belfast. As I say, Northern Ireland's small, but Anne-Marie Smith had never been to Belfast. It was only 40 miles away, but she'd never been there because country people just don't like to travel. (laughs) So she decided that she would follow the group and she went with them in their van and they were playing at a local sports club in Belfast that was affiliated to a local soccer team. And it was just an affiliation to them as a supporters club. So basically what happens is she's had a few drinks at the first gig. She goes to the second gig. And while she's there, the group are playing, they're roadies, everybody's intermingling. And they're intermingling with the people who attend this social club every week. Unfortunately for Anne-Marie Smith, a lot of the people that attended that were paramilitaries. They were part of the loyalist paramilitary groups. And as things would progress during the evening, she was dancing. She loved to dance. And she was dancing on the floor. And some of the girls akin to the paramilitary groups went and danced with her. They asked her a couple of questions. And by virtue of her answers, they immediately identified her as a Roman Catholic. Now, this is a really simple thing. If in Northern Ireland you're asked to spell your name, and for example, your name is Harry, one side of the community will spell that H-A-R-R-Y. The other side will spell it H-A-R-R-Y. And that was basically how she was found out. And this is a common thing over here. It's so simple to identify people. But because she's had a few drinks, the girls, to say the least, befriended her. In between dances, they went back to the guys at the table and said, this girl is a Roman Catholic. We think she's a Republican. Now, because you're a Roman Catholic does not make you a Republican, does not make you a terrorist. Let's get that out of the way. It certainly does not. This girl was a really decent girl and she had no enemies or so she thought. But these girls said, why don't we bring her to the party tonight in the house? And what we'll do is... We'll give her a beating just because she's a Roman Catholic. Did they ask her that identifying question on purpose to ferret her out to see which side she fell on? Yes, absolutely. People over here are quite territorial. 
and the people in that club would have been extremely territorial. And they knew she didn't belong. Well, absolutely. They knew she was with the group. She didn't belong. And by virtue of some of the answers to her questions, she inadvertently set herself up as a target, which shouldn't happen in normal society. Let's be honest about it. You should be free to speak about whatever you want and hold any view you want, so long as it sort of is almost within the law. (coughs) So basically, the dance goes on and she has more drinks. They buy her drinks and they start to introduce her to the concept of not leaving with her friends and coming to the party, and they would get her home the next day. In between times, the guys that were involved in this group, there were five of them, and there were a number of girls, they already had made their mind up that if they got her to the party, she was going to get a beating because she was a Republican. So what they do is they get one of the guys, and we'll number them all, one, two, three, four, five. Okay. So instead of names, we're going to call them Mr. Number One, Mr. Number Two, Mr. Number Three, Four, Five, like that? Right. So Mr. Number One, he dances with her. He's a good-looking guy, and he pays her a bit of attention. He invites her to the party and tells her that this party goes on every Sunday night, and that's what they do. To cut a long story short, she goes to the party. Do Anne-Marie's friends from the band go with her? No. The group leave and head back towards their own hometown. So she comes to the party. There are a number of girls in this house. The house is uh, a downstairs floor and an upstairs floor with a number of bedrooms. Okay? So they all go in and she sits down and they're playing music. And the party goes on. There are a few more drinks. So Mr. Number One, who is the guy that brings her to the party, he talks to a guy who'll be known as Mr. Number Two, and he was the house owner, and he would have been a prominent leader in the paramilitary organisation. So at that stage, they make up their mind, let's take her upstairs, and we're going to basically do whatever we want to her, but she's going to get a beating. So that's it. The girls downstairs know that this is going to happen, but they think it's quite funny, by the way. So the other guys in the house are probably not sure at this stage as to what's about to happen. In between times, Anne-Marie is sitting on the sofa in the main living room with the other people, and she doesn't particularly like the music. So she just happens to say, look, I have a cassette here. 1992, cassettes were still (laughs) in use. I have a cassette here. Can I put it into the player? And she did, and she was dancing for a while. In between the dancing and talking to the girls, Mr. Number One and Mr. Number Two invite her up the stairs for whatever reason. I'm not going to go into that. But the bottom line is, that is the last time that Anne-Marie Smith is seen by most of the people downstairs. The party goes on downstairs, and after a period of time, they can hear like a bang upstairs, something falling But they don't go and investigate. Why should they? It's Anne-Marie Smith. She's a Roman Catholic. She's a Republican. She's going to get a beating. Mr. Number Two walks down into the living room. And at the time, he's carrying a basin. And one of the girls at the party, she made a witness statement later, said that there was water in the basin that had some blood in it. Not much, but what looked like blood. 
He comes down, goes into the kitchen, and he invites two other guys to come upstairs. They leave the living room and go upstairs. The girls don't go near it. The girls do not go upstairs. They do not leave the living room. So whatever has happened has already happened up there, and there's no sign of Anne-Marie Smith. So one of the guys comes down, makes a phone call, and guy number five, so that's one and two of the first two, take her upstairs. Three and four are the two guys that are told to come upstairs, and number five is a boy who calls at the house. The reason he calls at the house is because he has an estate car. What's that? The best way to describe it is uh, a station wagon. Oh, okay. So he has a station wagon. So now we have five guys up the stairs, one, two, three, four, five. The girls are all downstairs and they hear bumping coming down the stairs. The front door opens, closes and the car speeds off. They don't see Anne-Marie Smith again. They continue with their party. So we don't know what happens next. The next day, someone is out walking in a local side street and they see what they think is a rolled up carpet, just an entryway or back alleyway. And they go and explore. And in that rolled up carpet is the body of a female with her throat cut, almost cut right through to her spine. (sighs) Police are called and a murder investigation begins. Was Anne-Marie found with identification on her? Yes. So Anne-Marie Smith, she's 24 years old. She grew up 40 miles from Belfast, and this is her first trip to Belfast. I would imagine there's some naivete on her part. She didn't know that she was walking into the wolf's den. No. So she feels free to answer these questions honestly, and it ends up putting a huge target on her. She does indeed. That's how it was described in the local papers. Yeah, it's just, it's so unfortunate. Inadvertently, she was the author of her own misfortunes. She was naive, innocent. But there are people that preyed on that. Yeah. So, I was part of the initial murder investigation team. This happened just in the outskirts of Belfast. Again, Belfast, very small city. Population about 650, 750,000 people. So it's in the centre of Belfast, and I was working there at the time. But after about two weeks, the inquiry's going nowhere. We haven't any clues. However, we knew that she went to the social club, and we interviewed every person that was in the social club that night, including Mr. Number 1234, the four guys. We weren't aware of the guy in the car, and we interviewed all the girls. And they all had a story. Oh, yes, we danced with her in the club. Oh, she was a really, really nice girl. You know, it was good to see people from that side of the community coming to our club. But she left, as far as we're concerned, she left with her friends. So the inquiry was going nowhere. I can imagine how the death notification to the family went, but that's always a sensitive thing for law enforcement. It's a very intimate encounter with a family when you're delivering the worst news ever is what kind of information, I mean, how did they receive it? I have an idea. And what kind of information were they able to give about Anne-Marie's habits? So obviously we do a full background. We do, uh, I suppose, a standard of life, et cetera, and do all victims. I don't know how you do it there, but in each of our forces, in each of our areas that we work in, we would appoint a family liaison officer. And a family liaison officer would be the sole contact with the victim's family. 
And we think that that's a good way of doing it. In other words, they have a single point of contact where they're not constantly being bombarded by different detectives asking different questions. The information that they would have been given was that the body of their daughter was found. The state of the body at that stage would not have been revealed to them, obviously because we didn't know the cause of death. It later transpired that the cause of death was strangulation and that her throat was probably cut post-mortem. So they give the background and basically she's a good girl. She has two kids. You know, what are we going to do? And you can imagine, you know, where this happened. This is a sectarian murder. It was reported in the press here as a sectarian murder. You know, this is a Roman Catholic girl in a Protestant area. She's found murdered. She was just going to watch a band play. So as I say, going on from that, we do all the interviews, but we have no suspects. There are no suspects at all because all these people are giving plausible alibis, if you like. But having said that, if you look deeply into them, they all alibi each other. So the inquiry continues. And one night, a mother brings her daughter to a police station. This young girl at this stage is 17 years of age. And basically her story is, I was there. I was one of the females. I can't live with this. I have to tell you what I know. She then recounted the story of Anne-Marie Smith coming to the house and uh, the story in the social club beforehand where the girls befriended her and they decided they were going to take her back and give her a beating. So she recounts all this. She then says that everybody knows everybody else. She named everybody that was in the house and we had already interviewed them, Mr. Number One and Number Two. They were the main perpetrators. They took her up the stairs But she did not witness any killing. She did not see Anne-Marie Smith when she left that room. And as a result of her information, it became pretty obvious that she was basically taking her own life in their hands. And as a result of her information and her statement and her willingness to attend the court, she was initially put into witness protection. Oh, wow. To this day, she still remains in witness protection. So as a result of her story, four guys and three girls are arrested. Mr. Number one, two, three, and four of the guys, the girls have only ancillary parts, and I'm not going to go into them, but it's the four guys are the main perpetrators, number one and two being the main ones. When this witness comes forward, this 17-year-old female, and she starts giving you guys information about suspects one through four, how does that go down when you start rounding these guys up? Well, before we even went for them, they already knew the jungle drums had started and that she had went to the police. The night after she gave her statement, her house was petrol bombed. (gasps) And this was before we arrested them. We thought that she was safe. From that, we moved her and her family out of the house and she never went back there. So we go and we're detailed to interview these guys. I was given Mr. Number Three, and that was the one I had to interview. Another team was on Number One. We had four different interview teams. But the statement that this girl made, and I have read some statements in my time from various atrocities in Northern Ireland and really heinous crimes. This was one of the most haunting statements I ever read because it gave you the details of an event, but no facts. She couldn't say what happened upstairs, but she knows that she never saw Anne-Marie Smith again. She heard a bump. But what she was able to tell us was that 
It was funny that the next day, number two, Mr. Number Two, who owned the house, called everybody back to his house. They completely redecorated the downstairs room, the hallway, and the bedroom that Anne-Marie Smith was eventually in. They completely redecorated, but we didn't know this at the time because we had no reason to search the house. So this all went on and was suspicious. Number two, when he invited everybody back over to the house the morning after, does he start making threats? No, he doesn't have to. They just know. It's understood. He was an evil, evil person. So he would not have to make a threat. Everybody would know that if they crossed him, well, that was good night. Well, it's pretty amazing to me that that 17-year-old, in light of all that, still can't live with the knowledge of what she knows what happened upstairs, and she has to come forward. I think it's incredibly brave. Yeah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360-degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. 
So anyway, we commence the interviews and I'm interviewing Mr. Number Three. And the information from her statement was that he was one of the ones that had to go up the stairs, was called up to see what had happened. This is the statement from the 17-year-old witness. Yes. And when he came down, he made a phone call and he got the guy with the station wagon. And that's all she knew. She didn't see the carpet going out. She didn't see Anne-Marie with her throat slit. She did not see Anne-Marie again. So we get them in and we start to interview all the suspects. So basically how it works is at that stage, they were all brought into what we would call a terrorist holding centre. And the legislation we used then was the Prevention of Terrorism Act because this was not a normal murder. This was a sectarian murder linked to terrorism. Did you already know that, that she was murdered because she was a Roman Catholic? Yes, oh, absolutely, because when we established who the main perpetrators were, they were all known to us. In fact, one of them was known before and had been interviewed by myself and then someone else for another murder, which he didn't admit and he was never found guilty of. So, as I said, Northern Ireland's small, so you really do know these people. This group is what we would call frequent flyers over here in the States. Were these guys employed? Most of these people don't work. How do they make their living? State benefits, robbery, drug dealing, basically any underhanded way to make money, they'll do it. And if they were dealing drugs, were they also using drugs? Oh, good God, yes. Yeah, I'm not being flippant about it, but yes, drugs, alcohol. Yeah, they were. So anyway, we start the interview number three, and as is common, the first thing you're going to do is explain why they're there. There is no legal representation in the interview room, and at that stage, 1992, the interviews are not recorded. They're all completed on contemporaneous notes, so it's pages and pages and pages of interview notes. So myself and the guy that did the interview with me, who was also a friend of mine, And we got on fairly well as interview partners and as detectives, police officers. You sort of have to gel with the partner you're interviewing with and be able to know when the other person is sort of lacking something that you need to jump in. But it's about taking good notes and just listening to what the person says and then developing your questioning strategy from that. But this guy came in and uh, he was quite cocky. Mr. Number Three was? Right, We initially arrested them for three days. Under the Prevention of Terrorism Act, we could hold people for up to seven days without charge. But we initially went for three. Then we would go to court and ask for another two. And if necessary, go back to court and it would be granted, provided there were sufficient grounds. So we start interviewing this guy, Mr. Number Three, and uh, very cocky. I know nothing about this. Yes, I remember a girl there, etc., etc. And we got a bit of background on him and we had a basic intelligence brief on him. And we knew that he was affiliated to one of the paramilitary organisations. He would not have been a prime member, but he was a member nonetheless. So his story was that, uh, yes, that Sunday night, I did what I did every Sunday night. And this was a few weeks after the event. And what was that? Yeah, well, I left the house in and around 11 o'clock. I walked home in the front door. To the side of the front door is our living room. I went in. My father's watching the movie, the late movie on TV, which is what he does every Sunday night. So fair enough. That's great. So this goes on, and there's a lot of other ancillary questions. And this goes on over a period of a number of hours. 
So after the first day, we have basically him tied to his alibi, which is very important because you can't shake it. You know, it becomes harder and harder. Right, because every time he changes his story, that's not good for him. So Mr. Number Three is going all in on this alibi where he watched the Sunday night movie on the BBC with his dad. Yeah. Got it. And Sam, how are you faring through all of this? Well, I remember that night I used to call in and see my mum and dad who lived about six miles from the holding centre and it was on my way home. So I called in to see my mum and dad as a dutiful son and... uh, My mum, she was in bed or making us a cup of tea or something like that. But I remember my dad, we were sitting talking and he said, what are you working on? And I said, oh, it's that Anne-Marie Smith thing. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Oh, there you go. Don't tell him anything about it, but he knew what I was working on. It's sort of common knowledge. Because by now it's a pretty high profile case. Yes. And he made a throwaway comment to me that night. And his comment was, oh, by the way, did you see the snooker? the other Sunday night. And I said, what snooker? He said, well, the World Championships was on TV. Like pool? Like pool, only over here we play pool and we also play snooker, which is more balls on the table. Harder to play, bigger table, but anyway. So he said, did you see it? And I said, I must admit I didn't. I can't remember what I was doing, but I didn't see the snooker that night. And then I thought to myself, hold on, what night was that? And that was the Sunday night that Anne-Marie Smith was murdered. And he said, oh, brilliant match. It actually went on to about one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. And the BBC televised the whole lot. Are you sure about that? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I stayed up and watched it. So now I have an alibi from number three. His alibi is he was in his house that night at 11 o'clock and his father was watching the movie on TV, on the BBC, because that's what they do every Sunday night unless there's a snooker competition on, in which case the movie's taken off and it ends up that they play the snooker right through to the end. So next morning I go to the bosses and I say, right, our friend's alibi, I think I've shot it to hell. Actually, I didn't shoot it to hell. My dad did. (laughs) Just an inadvertent comment. By the way, my father had nothing to do with the police. In fact, he hated the fact that I joined the police until he saw me in uniform the first time and he said, okay, I'm proud of you, that's it. (laughs) But um, again, going back to it, so this inadvertent comment gives me a new gusto to go into the interview room. So we go in and myself and the interviewer, we say to number three, right, so your alibi, could you go over that again for me if you don't mind, please? And the notes are there, yes, I did that and I went home and blah, blah, blah. In between time, we had sent detectives to his house to interview his father. His father's story was, yes, I remember him coming in, but he just went up the stairs. He didn't come in to me. And the next morning, he walked out carrying a bag and he had a cap on. This was the father's story. So we talked to number three and say, right, your alibi, please go over that again. Yes, I went home 11 o'clock. I went in, I saw my dad. He was watching the movie. Could you tell me what the movie was? He mentioned what the movie was, and I'm writing all this down, and the guy beside me, he's actually nudging me, you know, as if to say, let's get on with this. We have this guy over a barrel. It's not just as simple as that. You have to play it out. You want to get the facts as the suspect sees them on paper first. So we'll say to him, right, um, we're just going to have a break now. 
but I want you to consider what you've just told me. And by the way, I'm going to read the notes out to you. So as was our common practice, at the end of every interview, we read the notes out to the suspect. We let them read them if they wanted. And if they chose to, they can sign them. You're checking for accuracy, yes? Yeah. So we have this guy, he has given this alibi on numerous occasions. And we know now it's factually incorrect. It can't be correct. So we come out and we have a cup of coffee, a little joyous cup of coffee, because we're going back in to say, this is what your father said. This is the fact. So we'll go into him and start the interview off. How are you? Can I get you anything? You know, how's your health in general? Uh, you had nothing to do with the murder, of course, blah, blah, blah. And we go through the preamble and say, it's about your alibi. What's wrong with it? Well, we've just blown it completely out of the water. We have a statement from your father. This is it. We showed him a copy of the statement. His father had made this statement innocently, by the way. It was because to try and help his son. Ended up not helping him that much. So what happens then is uh, we said, like, the statement from your father. Yes, your father says you come home the Sunday night. He didn't see you. You went out of the house the next day. You were wearing a cap and carrying something. Oh, and by the way, the movie that you saw wasn't on. Snooker was on. And he made a sort of a grunt. And he said, no, that can't be right. He said, no, we have checked with the BBC. We have actually checked with the British Broadcasting. That happened. Your alibi is a... It, it, it's a load of... Um, <laughs> you can say it's a piece it. of shit. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it, it's the biggest load of shit that I've ever heard, basically. <laughs> so maybe you want to reflect on this for a few moments and take a breath because the next words coming out of your mouth are probably going to assist you in a life sentence here. We know that you were in the house. We know that this is what happened. We know that you went up the stairs. We know you made this phone call. I'm not saying you murdered Anne-Marie Smith, but you were part of it. So he takes a sort of a step back and sits there, reflects very briefly. And he said, look, I'll tell you what I know. So, okay, we're going to take that. This all sounds awfully simple, but it's over a convoluted period of time. And he said, yes, I was at the club. She was a Republican. We were taking her back to the house. They were going to give her a hiding. But then he told us what he did. He was called up to the bedroom. So this is the first time with someone leaving the living room. So he walks up to the bedroom. That's number three, along with number four. He walks into the bedroom, and it's quite a small bedroom. There's a double bed in it. And to the side of the double bed, between the double bed and the wall, is the body of Anne-Marie Smith. And it's quite evident she's dead. They don't go into what happened. The guys say, look, we don't know what happened to her. There's no confession from them to him. But one of the things I asked him to do was, again, to authenticate what he was telling me was, would you draw a sketch for me? And I give him a blank piece of paper. And he said, I'm not very good at art. I said, you don't have to be good at art. Just draw me a stick person. You mark where the bed is, whatever it is. And he drew a map. And to the side, he drew this little stick person. And he said, Anne-Marie Smith. I said, now do me a favor. The time is and the date is. Would you write that down and sign it? Again, for authenticity. And then myself and my colleague, we signed it. So we then had his version of what happened. But what happened after that was he said, yes, I had to come down and make a phone call to number five, who had the station wagon. We wrapped her up in a carpet 
and we were going to dump her in a side street in Belfast, okay? He is not one of the ones that goes out in the car. There are three of the guys, so it was number two, four, and five go out with her in the car. And as a result of what happens there, we then find out that she has her throat slit to the back of her spine. But during the other interviews of these people, there are no other significant statements made. Nobody gives any other admissions, but we have his story. So we charge them all with the murder. But number four, when he's being interviewed, says to his interviewers, and it's the only significant statement he made, and he said, is it possible to murder a dead body? And he laughed as he said it. Oh, my God. And this was the guy that we suspected had slit her throat. After she had been strangled to death. Yes, after the event. Oh. Everything's going well, but we can't put Anne-Marie Smith in the house. You can't? We have only got hearsay. Oh, and the suspects had also done that so-called remodel of the house to erase any trace of Anne-Marie at all. Yeah. Oh. There's no fingerprints. There's no DNA. There's nothing to associate her with the house. So to try and tie up all the loose ends, we go back to our original witness, who's the young girl who gave the initial statement, and we say, look, we can't prove she was in the house. Is there anything else you can remember? Now, in between times we have searched this house, that's how we found out it had all been redecorated, and it was perfect. It was a real forensic cleanup. And she said, no, I've told you everything I can. But there was one thing I didn't tell you. She was sitting on the sofa, she didn't like the music, so she changed it, and she put a cassette into the cassette player. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh my God, she left the tape in the cassette player. Yeah, so we immediately send the search team back to the house. And the music that she had put in was the song by Brian Adams, Anything I Do, I Do For You. The search team goes to the house and they go to the music centre and they open it up. And lo and behold, still in the music centre, not cleared out of it, is the cassette. On that cassette, when we forensically tested, 
is on Marie Smith's fingerprints. So we can now tie her to the house and we can now charge them. All five are charged. Mr. Number One and Two, when we go to court, they fight it. They fight it tooth and nail in court, obviously pleading not guilty. The young girl that gave the evidence was in the witness box for a long time and they tried to shake her story. Now, she wasn't a particularly good young girl. In fact, she had a previous conviction for theft. So what the defence counsel said was, how can we believe your story? You've got a previous conviction for theft. She said, I may be a thief, but I'm not a murderer. And she pointed to the guy and says, those are the guys that murdered Anne-Marie Smith, which I thought was very brave of her at that time. In all terrorist cases, there was no jury. It's a judge only. Northern Ireland, because of the troubles here, you couldn't get a jury that wouldn't be tampered with and in some cases intimidated and possibly even killed. So we had a thing called Diplock Courts where a judge, based on the evidence they had heard, gave the verdict. So the judge had no trouble. He found them all guilty and convicted all five of them with the murder. Number one and two were the main perpetrators and uh, the other three were accessories to murder after the event. But the bottom line was they were all convicted. They all got 25 years with a stipulation that they had to serve, say, 15 years. This was 1993 was their trial. In 1997, I think it was, they all appealed their sentences because they said, well, we should never have been convicted of this. We didn't admit this. So they went before the Supreme Court in Northern Ireland. Number one and two, he upheld their convictions. In other words, your conviction for murder stands. The other three, he absolved their conviction for murder, but convicted them of lesser offences. So that was it. They got their sentences reduced to eight years. So that was 1993. Unfortunately for us, in 1998, we had the peace agreement signed here. And that was the deal that was done between the British government, the Irish government, and half of the world to say that there was going to be peace in our time in Northern Ireland. The IRA were going to lay down their weapons. The Protestant paramilitaries were going to lay down their weapons. And this was going to be the land of milk and honey. One of the sops was that anybody convicted of terrorist offences would be released from prison. No. Seriously. So they were all released. Some of them had done longer than others. So we had murderers were basically released onto the streets. And I have to say, I don't know if you know it or not, but the prime movers in the peace process to be signed in Northern Ireland was the Prime Minister of the UK, Tony Blair, and a certain president named Bill Clinton. Yep. Who came to Belfast and turned our Christmas tree on in Christmas 1998, peace in our time, etc., etc. So, Sam, I just want to outline this and make sure that I'm following along with you. Anne-Marie Smith's murder was a sectarian murder, which made it an act of terrorism. But if everyone convicted of terrorism has been let out of jail, that means every sectarian crime... Then this peace treaty gets that block of convictions thrown out. Every single one. And it wasn't just the Republicans, by the way, got released. It was both sides of the community. So basically our jails opened and, you know, people serving a 25-year sentence and maybe only started it three years before. Well, here, out you go. You know, it's Christmas. Let's go out there and enjoy yourself in the community. And a lot of them have reoffended because they don't know anything else. 
So there part of the story ends. Now, the aside to this is, the guy that slit her throat, and we always knew he did it. He was a prominent paramilitary, and he went to live in a local town here, and he was a drug dealer. Unfortunately for him, he crossed the wrong people and gets shot dead one Sunday night in a local bar. Let's go back to karma again. And I'm sorry for being cynical. And I know people listening to this will say, you know, he's evil. I'm not, but he did, he got shot. And the rest of them are sort of living lives of ignominy. They're no better than scum of the earth. But the bottom line is, Anne-Marie Smith's two kids are still growing up and they're being looked after, I would assume, they're well grown up now, but at the start they had to be looked after by her parents. So young girl didn't need to die, but it just showed how cheap life was in Belfast at that time. Ah, oh, it's just brutal. You mentioned that the five appealed their convictions because they said we never confessed. Do you have to have confessed in order for a judge to find you guilty? No. What sort of reasoning is that? The judge can find it based on the evidence beyond all reasonable doubt, and they call the evidence of the young girl in the question. I see. I have seen police officers in witness boxes capitulating and saying things they shouldn't say. It's one of those things. It's a scary, scary place, the witness box. I actually was one of these guys. I loved it. I just thought it was a big game. As long as you know what you have done is right, you can't be beaten. But it does scare and does hold a certain amount of trepidation for a lot of police officers. And they do make mistakes that they should never make. But this was a young girl. And I'm going to say with a minimal education. She didn't have high school education. She probably was only schooled until she was about 14. But she was streetwise. Why would she not have finished school? Couldn't be bothered. Ah. So it's a social thing here. There are great sort of uh, social problems here with kids from the so-called deprived areas. And there's a lot of unemployment pro rata to the population on both sides of the community, by the way. But some of the kids, they get more interested in stealing cars, breaking into houses, getting involved in drugs and getting involved with gangs. Kids find it sort of as they're growing up. Quite, I suppose, sexy to be part of a paramilitary organization because when you walk into a room, you're Jack the Lad, but you're not really. You're just a scared kid, but you don't portray that. So that was it. But the convictions for the first two held and the other ones, they were reduced. But the guy that slit her throat, as I say, karma. Karma's a real bitch. That was suspect number four, right? Yeah, I was four. And he's the one who said, can you murder a dead body? Can you kill a dead body? Yeah. The great thing about this 17-year-old who initially comes forward and then testifies is the truth is really easy. And like you say, if you know you've done everything right, being on the stand is actually fun because you're not going to back me into a corner. I can probably anticipate four or five questions out where you're trying to take me if you're trying to impeach me as a witness. And clearly the defense tries to impeach this female based on this theft in her history. But... She's got this streetwise sense, and she's got the truth on her side, and she's got this kind of street edginess and confidence, I can imagine, where she's just blunt and direct, and she's like, well, you know, I'm, I may be a thief, but I'm not a murderer. Exactly. And she pointed them out. She actually pointed to them all sitting there and said, they murdered Anne Marie Smith. Yeah. This is a young girl whose whole life is in front of her. Now she's had to move with her mother and sister. They have been spirited away out of Northern Ireland. 
and they're now fully in a witness protection programme at the time of the trial. So, as I say, Northern Ireland being a small place, you can't hide witnesses here. There's no doubt. It just can't be done. So she spurred it away. And obviously, if you've ever worked with them, once you're in the witness protection programme, there's only certain ways you leave it. And one of them is at your own request. And very few people would ever actually leave the witness protection programme because we have people who would still be involved in it from the early 1980s. What an incredible turn of events. And as Dan and Dave both said, the bravery of that 17-year-old can't be overstated. What a desperately tragic story. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's just so great to meet law enforcement around the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And thank you for that snooker match. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And your dad watching. Sometimes it's the little things. And in this case, it's you catching on to what was on the BBC that actual night and a Brian Adams cassette breaks a case. Again, it was just one of those pure flukes. Everybody says they commit the perfect crime. We did the perfect cleanup. No, they didn't. Just a simple thing. That's what got it. Yeah. I love it. Incredible. Thank you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you. 